0: Hello
1: and welcome to Cities of Sand, a podcast which unearths the connections between urbanisation and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson and I'm your host. Thanks for joining. In this second episode, we take a regional focus in Southeast Asia, learning from WWF's Marc Gauchon and researchers, Dr. Chris Hackney, Will Jameson, and Jean-Yves to understand how sand is shifting across this vast region of the world and what the implications of this are. Perhaps if we start with Jean-Yves and you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the focus of your
0: work. At the moment, I'm working as a policy officer for the Centre Party in Switzerland. So uh, I haven't dealt with sand in a while and i'm mostly in charge of uh, security and foreign policy also science and education
1: thanks will and jean-yves it's great to have you both here together so will i know you've published on the question of sand consumption importation in singapore and i understand jean-yves this was the focus of your master's thesis so it's great to have you here in conversation with each other so from what I know, Singapore is kind of positioned as this extreme version of sand consumption, the biggest imports of sand in the world from different places throughout the region of Southeast Asia. And here sand is used for its ambitious land reclamation projects, as well as for the continued expansions of its dense skyline. Is, is this how you understand the situation?
0: Singapore needs to grow in many ways, be it economically and through that it then also has to grow physically and that can be vertically or horizontally and that's why and in both cases sand is a vital component for that growth, be it through land reclamation or then through concrete, to um build the new high-rise building.
1: Where did this history of sand consumption um, and land reclamation in Singapore really began.
0: Land reclamation in Singapore
2: began with its colonisation by the British Eastern India Company with the first reclamation beginning in 1822 to reclaim some swampland into a port. And then there were some other, you know, colonial reclamations here and there, but it was only after Singapore became an independent state in 1965 did it begin this really kind of um, ambitious long-term and almost like a continuous um reclamation project beginning with the reclamation of the east coast to build uh, to kind of build some housing estates on re- reclaimed land and i think they used their own fort sand to reclaim with but they mostly cut up their own hills and whatever like large hills were in singapore on the east coast were, were cut down and, and the dirt was used to um, r- reclaim uh, that land with And and it, it was only in the 80s and 90s i think and Probably like official records of sand imports begin in the 90s of Singapore importing sand from Malaysia and, in, and Indonesia. And then, you know, eventually Malaysia banned sand mining and sand export to Singapore in 1997. But then there was still you know, irregular enforcement, which only really so full. The full ban was put into place in 2003, which which then caused them to look, look more seriously at Indonesia which also caused problems, as have already been mentioned and resulted in in, an interdusion sand ban in um, 2007. What sort of draws me to it now is this idea of continuity between its sort of colonial and post-colonial governance. And it's only really when Singapore becomes like a, a global city and begins really positioning itself as a global city that it begins to literally import millions of tons of sand from you know f- five or six other nations now uh, maybe seven and it's, it's it's an irony i keep on returning so to So, what
1: did your research reveal what kinds of ideas or concepts emerged as important in your understanding of the relationship between singapore and sand
0: five years ago something that i linked to the whole idea of sand and singapore was the idea of the developmental state and that basically also links to capitalism and the idea of growth and that being the, the raison d'etre for the government. And to stay in power, you have to grow and being an island state. How do you do that? And that's where sand comes in as a fundamentally important resource. And also going upwards and what's coming now more uh, going Downwards into the ground, and how spaces are changed through that, so that the economy can keep growing, and so that the PAP party can stay in power because it still manages to provide this uh, economic growth for its citizens.
1: And Will, what kind of things have has your research unearthed? What would you be? What would you say your main findings would be in an understanding between Singapore and sand?
2: What I just said was, was really, really interesting because um, the, the ruling uh, government in Singapore, which has been the same government since its independence, so that, that's something else to really kind of put in the background here that there's like a real culture of uh, political control, but they've ruled through this kind of discourse of pragmatism, but by being very pragmatic, they've like made economic growth slip into geographic growth. So they kind of have to like literally grow the nation um, as well as grow the economy. And and I think what's interesting is that since the sand market for Singapore has become way more um, volatile, they've been trying to find other means of um, expanding their space, either ways of reclaiming that don't use as much sand or foregoing sand entirely, or um, trying to develop underground space. So yeah, like um, with a volumetric term, but now they've they're able to sort of effectively try and synchronize a uh, expansion underground with, with, um, with, with a horizontal expansion. So they, 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 they've been using um, uh, some of the material that they're digging out for tunnels as a material to reclaim land with either kind of clay or other kinds of soil, which, which are just simply not as good to reclaim with as sand. It's not as simple and it's not as, um, it, it's a bit less te- technically intensive to reclaim land with um with sand so i think sand for the for, for the um for the Singaporean state represents this really kind of like this, this 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 almost like um this figure that it can't get rid of but it it's it, it's trying to rid itself off but it can't fully sort of um uh, uh, um, f- um fully sort of cl- um, cleanse itself of it it's what it's it's what makes the state vulnerable to kind of claims and kind of claims from from the outside and 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 makes it sort of kind of you know in a geopolitical way like quite weak like if it sort of if it has to rely on quite a um you know disastrous trade there's a in in the in his in the prime minister's 2019 national day address they um They've said that they're going to um, spend $1 billion a year for 100 years to reclaim land to combat sea level rise. So even though that there's all this talk and research funding of, of finding other ways of, you know, re, re, reclaiming land or expanding space otherwise, the kind of, you know, ultimately the, um, you know, land reclamation and, and the sand, it, it will in, inevitably dredge up is going to be justified you know, as a matter of national survival, so so they can sort of keep growing until twenty one hundred. As much as it, it it's a a bit of na- uh, nationalistic rhetoric, I think it's also like you know g- um, good to keep in mind that this is uh, they have you know no trouble executing long term plans. So I think that like the implications of the, of that I find a bit um, a bit r- r- remarkable, especially considering where those places where they're um, importing the sand and extracting the sand as, you know are going to are are climatically vulnerable places and are going to be, you know, extremely um, vulnerable to sea level rise.
1: If we know that sand is imported in significant volumes for both land reclamation and vertical expansions to the skyline, where is this sand coming from and what are the implications of this extraction?
2: For my research, I also um, did research on one of Singapore's sites of extraction and it was a uh, coastal province in Cambodia and it and it began importing sand um, from between two thousand and eight and twenty sixteen. And this trade was kind of like marked by just like a wanton degree of sort of like corruption and, you know, and kind of um, environmental um, uh, degradation. First of all, um, most of the areas or like some of the prime prime areas of dredging classified as nature reserves or uh, other kinds of protected areas. Um, there was specifically one village near an estuary where over I, I think only over like two or three years, about 20 percent of the village's population had effectively been displaced because it, it is a fishing village and, and catches had declined so sharply that um you know like a fifth of the people in the village had to either move to a city or you know in some cases move to thailand because uh, there was just no way for them to keep up uh, repayments on fuel and their equipment Mm. and i think what's interesting is that in, in the past the sand import from malaysia and indonesia those are countries that have such a long history with singapore geopolitically that it's hard to kind of get into that without also going into all of their sort of kind of like tense ties that they all have together but with with cambodia singapore didn't really still doesn't and didn't especially didn't used to have a particularly strong relationship with it so it was kind of interesting to see how in the space of a year between 2007 and 2008, Singapore had managed to informally, you know, the, the, there was no contract between these two, two governments yet. You know, within a year, there were like 20 or 30 dredging ships in this remote coastal province in Cambodia that had scarcely seen any real um, dredging before. And um, there's this ex- excellent report by this NGO, investigative NGO called Global Witness, called Shifting Sands. And it does go into lo- uh, so much detail about basically the uh, corruption going on in, in the Cambodian government to facilitate this really um, destructive sand mining. But also as there are quite a few telling uh, moments where they found some um, sand mining permits issued by the um, Cambodian government that bore the signature of a Singaporean diplomat who was first secretary at uh, Singapore's embassy in Cambodia, which is just quite, quite interesting, and that's never been explained. There's no reason for a Singaporean official of the government to be signing a Cambodian go- a government document, yet somehow his signature made its way onto these mining permits.
1: It's fascinating so, to think about all the, this kind of connection yeah, um, and, and how um, opaque this trade is, really.
2: It's difficult to research for that very reason, uh, because you don't know how these kind of like informal arrangements are being made. And, you know, like compared to other resources, which are kind of somewhat more regulated, that there are some kind of agreements that have to be fulfilled uh, between these countries. But then sand is is just this thing that slips through the cracks and you just are left with these weird documents that don't
0: make any sense from like a legislative or regulatory point of view. Something else I wanted to add, what I found interesting is when we're talking about the origin of the sand that comes to Singapore, it's also to link it to the flow of the workers who then are on the ground in Singapore mm. and doing all this manual labor in construction and reclamation. They're also, let's say, imported from uh, the neighboring countries or in further afield.
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting to think about labor and... Uh, materials as being uh, taken from other parts of the world just to produce this one space which from what you're saying will is, is very vulnerable to mm. uh, climate change so uh, and sea level rise, but there are there are plans there to continue to protect it at the expense of the protection and security of other places. So it's quite an interesting and it seems like a really critical space to bring all of these ideas together. About environmental justice, urbanisation, labour regulations—it seems to be this kind of uh, pr- sand offers this sort of prism of a way of seeing all these different complications.
2: Mm. Yeah, and um, just to build on um, that that point about um, sand and um, or kind of like uh, migrant sand and migrant labour, there's like often the, these these migrant workers often live in these um, uh, dormitories which are purpose built you live 10 to 15 people to a room and often in these you know industrial zones on on reclaimed land or near these reclamations dormitories look over the reclamations themselves or the sand stockpiles themselves so it's this very kind of like really kind of surreal kind of uh hinterland within you know singapore's a small place but then these places are you know where no one ever goes to because there's there's no reason reason to go there but in some ways they're the most critical spaces for the you know production and re and reproduction of singapore as a global city and and there's this um film by this um singaporean director called, called yosu hua that came out in 28 2018 or 20, 2019 called um, a land imagined which sort of tackles this this issue of um you know sand and um mu- and my mi- and um migrant labor and it's about a migrant worker who goes missing on reclaimed land and it's quite it's it's i think it's on netflix it's quite an interesting watch if 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 you kind of want to see how these ideas are being worked through from uh, you know from people in Singapore who are aware that there's a you know like like behind their sort of you know this kind of like vaunted um, model of city there's a kind of there's there's a real uh, you know there's <laughs> a lot of grim stuff going on basically.
1: Well, thank you so much to you both for joining. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you.
3: Hi, Kate. Thanks for inviting me along to to take part in this podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Hackney. I'm a um, academic research fellow at Newcastle University uh, in the UK. I work in the School of Geography, uh, and my research focuses on the environmental uh, impacts of, of sand mining in rivers and delta systems, and how we can work towards more sustainable extraction of sand from those environments
1: could you tell us about how you got into this field of study where did this begin
3: um so my I mean my background is as a I guess you you, you might call it a, an earth scientist or a, a fluvial geomorphologist is the kind of technical term I'm interested in how rivers uh, and river channels change their shape and behavior as you change the pressures that act upon them and it's my interest in in sand as a as a commodity and as a as a mineral kind of began nearly sort of 10 years ago I started a a postdoc when I was based down at the University of Southampton and that project was working out on the Mekong River in Cambodia looking at how large river systems uh, and the Mekong is is a river that's thousands of kilometers long and Places is is one and a half kilometres wide, forty fifty metres deep. So much bigger scale than the systems we have here in the UK. Um, how systems like that respond to climate change, to hydropower development, to to the pressures of of economic, social development within within their basins. Um, and when we were out there, I mean, at, at that point, the first point, sand as a commodity hadn't really crossed my mind. Um, But getting there and getting on the ground, um, getting out on the river um, and working in Cambodia and then later on down in Vietnam, seeing firsthand the scale of the extraction industry in those places and the the sheer number of of vessels on the river that were dredging up sand from the riverbed, uh, and you can you can stand on the on the embankment in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, and look out across the Mekong, and you can see 10, 20 mining vessels just operating within that small area. You're scaling that up to to sort of hundreds of kilometres as we transited up and down doing our research, it it just made myself and also my other colleagues that were working with me realized that you know this is having a major impact on the way that the river and the mekong delta function as a as a physical system and obviously then the implications for the ecosystem the biodiversity and the, and the, the services that the river provides to communities and and that's what really sparked you know this this interest in you know, try, wanting to understand what those impacts are and how we can mitigate them as best we can to, to protect the environment that that's really important. Yeah, as I said, not just for the communities that live there, but regionally and, and globally as well.
1: So you, you've painted a really vivid picture of the scale at which sand has been taken from riverbeds and shifted elsewhere. Could you tell us where this sand is going? What's its future?
3: My experience, so a lot of my work is focused in, uh, in Cambodia and Vietnam, uh, out in the Mekong Basin, um, and and both of those countries have, have experienced fairly rapid economic development and, and growth and, and urbanisation over the past ooh, 10, 15, 20 years or so. Um, in Cambodia, for example, much of that that sand that's coming out of the the Mekong um is at the moment ending up in in the urban areas in Cambodia so there's predominantly Phnom Penh um where the the skyline of Phnom Penh has has exploded over the last sort of eight years or so I think the first time we went in 2012 they just topped out the first skyscraper uh, in Phnom Penh and now you go back sort of well maybe not over the past year because of because of the restrictions, but 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 recently, and and the skyline is one of a, of a modern sort of urban city with, with mm. many skyscrapers. Um, as well as that, the city has has expanded, um, and there's been a lot of infilling of, of the floodplains and the wetlands around Phnom Penh um, to, to create land for for urban development to accommodate, you know, the the increased urban population. Um, um, and they're also reclaiming land within the river itself. So there's two main projects. One was called Kopik or, or Diamond Island, um, which was constructed uh, around 2010, I believe, um, which is an artificial island. Um, and at the moment, they're building another large-scale um, reclamation project just south of the city, um, which is consuming a lot of, of sand and aggregates. To, to reclaim that land before they even then construct buildings on there. Um,
1: right, and and yeah, so the sand is being used to expand the actual land of the city as well as to, to vertically build on it.
3: Yes, yeah, so the, um, the, the, the geomorphology of, of the Cambodian floodplain is such that, you know, during the monsoon which happens every hopefully every year the floodplains around non often flood and are inundated by the monsoon flood um and there's been i uh, non has historically grown to to live with that and, and you know the, the communities there live with that but as the pressure for urbanization grows and the, the number of people living there expands the city has to expand and to, to kind of into those sort of flood basins and wetlands that would store and accommodate a lot of that monsoon flood water. So they're they're filling that in with aggregates, with sand and and gravel and crushed stone from from elsewhere in Cambodia um, to basically build up the level above that of of the floods and to to basically flood-proof those areas Um, before then obviously building with concrete and Um, the infrastructure that goes with all those developments as well so in
1: terms of protecting communities by extending the scope of this land is this sand bringing benefits to people equally um or is it only a group of people a certain group of people who are benefiting from this kind of sand
3: use so that's a that's a really important question um and one that i think is relevant not just in cambodia but but sort of all everywhere these developments and and extraction processes are taking place. Um, There's been a lot of of debate and and in some cases conflict in Cambodia around the infilling of these wetlands. Um, They were home to a lot of um, sort of traditional Cambodian communities um, that have been there for for decades, if not not longer. Um, And they're being... Displaced and losing their their homes because of the perceived need to 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 infill and, and expand into those areas. On top of that, you, you're changing the the dynamics of the flood behavior around Phnom Penh. So these basins would normally act to store a lot of that flood water and offer a, a buffer and some protection to Phnom Penh as the city. Um, so that the capacity in those wetlands to absorb some of that flood water mean, meant that non Penh had lower flood risk. Obviously, where you're infilling those and, and basically sanding them in and then concreting them over, um, that buffer capacity is lost. Mm. So then the flood wave moves into the city, so you're changing the flood hazard for the rest of the city uh, and all the other developments that exist. Obviously, that has then has implications for those communities and and those um, parts of society that have been living in non-pen for for decades as well and and elsewhere. Um, The flip side of that is that obviously the process of mining and extracting the sand, be that in riverbeds or from quarries on land, does provide an income to a lot of people Mm. um, and is does provide opportunity for, for many poor and, and not so well-off communities to to generate income and and, and sort of lift themselves out of, of poverty and provide you know water education clothing food for, the, for their families and and that's obviously needs to be recognized and taken into into balancing all this is in that a lot of people do rely on this industry for for an income yeah i
1: think that's something that um emerged in, in my own research as well that the impacts of these kinds of changes and extraction are damaging at the same time as that they bring benefits to, you know, even if they're small benefits to people without much um, leverage to do something else. Um, yeah. So it's definitely a complex one in, in, in environments, in urban environments, where there's not a huge amount of formal or well-paid work available. So is this sand expensive? Who is buying it?
3: And to be completely frank and honest, I I, I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Um, I know, for example, I was was just on on Google, and you can you can buy Mekong sand for your aquarium um, for your for your fish um, to be delivered wow. to well, worldwide UK, and they it was around twenty five pounds per kilogram of sand. Okay, I don't know if that's expensive for sand or not. Mm. But the fact that you could purchase it here, um, you know, and it's badged as Mekong sand, whether it it is, is, I suppose, a different question. But, you know, there are certain export markets for it that perhaps raise the price compared to to the local use. Um, In general, sand is a fairly low value commodity. Um, And because of that, the supply chains around it are often quite small and localised. I think that's interesting because often
1: when we think about extraction that spreads across the globe, it's these kinds of international dynamics which we think creates that huge asymmetry in distribution. But really also on the local level, also seeing some kind of um, unevenness in the distribution. We might have expected benefits to be kind of more evenly spread but really from what you're saying that some people are kind of benefiting from it to different degrees.
3: Yeah I think that's right I think it's um, and part of that comes from although it is such a common resource it's not one that's perhaps publicly known to be such a vital resource so if you kind of realise that you know, sand is going to be in high demand, even if just by your local city or your local region or your sort of national level, um, and you can get your foot into that industry as such, you, you've then got the market because modern society needs sand. Um, it, it can't function without it at, at this point in time. Um, so there's always going to be that demand. There's always going to be that need.
1: So I think from what I've read so far, you're working with some really interesting technologies to help make sense of these dynamics between sand and urbanisation. Could you tell us a little bit more about these?
3: So my research at the moment covers two connected areas, I'd say, around the processes of, of, and impacts of sand mining. Um, the first one of those is, is looking at the, the direct impacts of the extraction on river channels and the systems that they Flow through, and to do that, we employ a lot of high-resolution, fairly cutting-edge technology to to capture these dynamics. So we use something called a, a multi-beam echo sounder, um, which is basically a, a, a sonar system that that allows us to map the bed of the river at resolutions that are about from half a meter. Um, so you kind of get half a meter squares of topography of the riverbed. Yeah, so you have really, really detailed images of of the shape. Of the riverbed, you can see a lovely sort of sand dunes migrating down the river. But we use it because you can see exactly where they've mined the sand out of the bed, and that obviously leaves scars in the riverbed. And you can see those scars really nicely using this, this multi-beam sonar technology. Um, we did that and uh, published some work last year in um, Nature Sustainability that that that. Demonstrated how we use those techniques um, and the scale of these operations. So some of those individual pits where the suction dredges go down onto the riverbed, they can they can dig out like holes in the riverbed that are up to eight meters deep and, and 70 meters in diameter. So they're they're big scale um, changes into the riverbed. Um, and that's just one hole. And I think in one scene around Phnom we counted around 510 of these at any given time marks on the, on the bed. So it has a really big impact in the way that, not only the way that, that sand is then transported down the river, um, and there's a big sustainability issue around you know, if you're extracting volumes of sand, it's only sustainable if that's then being replaced by the river naturally. Um, and if you're extracting more than the river can replace, you're you're degrading that system. Um, right. Um, but also the the depths to which those pits work, so up to eight meters. Um, on average, across the entire river, if you if you average it out, it's it's equivalent to the riverbed decreasing in elevation by 10 centimetres a year. Um, And that then has implications for the stability of the riverbanks. So as you decrease your bed elevations, you steepen your riverbank angle, which makes them more prone to erosion. Um, So what we found in the study that that we did was that, you know, potentially lowering the riverbed by by two, three metres, can switch a lot of the riverbanks that we studied into a phase of increased erosion. Um, Now that that could be within sort of a decade or so if you're averaging out at at the rates that we see, but some of these pits were say eight meters deep. So instantaneously you you might upset some of these banks um, almost straight away after the mining process has happened. Um, So it, it really does change the dynamics of the river system which has implications for the infrastructure that's built along the top of the riverbanks, the communities that live on top of the riverbanks and and have their houses and their schools and their shops uh, along the riverbank if, if suddenly those riverbanks are going to start eroding much faster than they are now. You said a lot of
1: interesting things there and for me one that comes out quite clearly is this idea of kind of thresholds or tipping points. And I think, I mean, I'm not a physical geographer, but listening to you speak and doing a bit of reading on the kind of complex relationships between sand mining and river systems. How do we how do we build research that helps us kind of understand these thresholds, these tipping points at which the changes in the river system become irreversible?
3: I think you're right. I think that's a really important area that globally and in terms of not just for sand, but a lot of other pressures as well, we, we really need to. To understand, um, we we grow used to the way in which systems behave as society, and so we we get accustomed to the way these systems works. And then, if you hit a tipping point that suddenly changes the dynamic, as a society, we're not necessarily we don't necessarily have the capacity to adapt and respond um, as we, we previously would, um, and particularly with say sand. In the example of, of the bank erosion there, um, one of the key things is, is, is around this, this deficit that, that you create in the natural supply of sand by extracting it. So in the Mekong, for example, um, some of the other research that I've been doing has been, been trying to estimate volumes of extraction. There are official estimates for extraction and then there's that perhaps underestimate in a, in a lot of places the actual volumes that are extracted and um, one of the big sort of global issues at the moment is and uh, we discussed this earlier is around monitoring and enforcing these regulations um, around sand mining and some research that, that i've been doing has been using high resolution satellite imagery to to map the vessels that are operating within the river system so we've now got satellites that can collect imagery at, at three meter resolution and you can quite clearly see sand barges that are often 70, 60, 70 meters in length on those images. Um, so we can start to, to map their locations through time, and count the number of them that are that are working. Um, and that allows us to then get some sort of estimate of volume, because we they're not going to be operating if they're not collecting sand. Um, so the, the, using making some assumptions, we can back out estimates. And by doing that, I think, our estimates show that in Cambodia, they're extracting around between 50 and 70 million tons a year of sand. To put that into context, the work that we did using the multi-beam sonar suggests that the river itself only supplies around 6 million tons of sand a year. So that's a a 49, 49 to 64 million ton deficit Wow, a negative deficit in sand. So it's about, let's put it another way, it's about seven times the natural supply of sand is being removed every year.
1: I mean, you've alluded to some of these impacts, but just so that we're aware, what, what does this mean in quite basic terms? If there's a, this huge deficit of sand, what does that mean?
3: It means that when you dig out those pits, like you do from the riverbed, they, they're not being infilled by fresh sand. Particularly with in river systems, we need to think of sand as a almost as a fluid. It's not a it's not a rock or a mineral that's that's there and then you remove it, it's gone. There is in most rivers at least a, a supply of sand that comes down and replenishes this this resource. But that supply or that resource is really only sustainable if the supply and the extraction are, are close. Uh, it's very rare I think that you'll find if there is extraction that it's in balance with supply but close the sheer scale of that deficit is effectively just put, it pushes the river closer and closer to, to those tipping points that we talked about earlier you see net lowering of the riverbeds. you see the steepening of riverbanks, and, and by doing that you then change the dynamics of the system so there was other research by um, a group in Singapore that came out earlier this year showed that that incision of the riverbed is starting to change the way that that the the river flows into um, the Tonle Sap Lake in Cambodia, which is the largest freshwater lake in in Southeast Asia, um, is vital for for fisheries and migratory fish stocks and and the breeding of of fish in in the Mekong region. Sand mining is having an impact on that system by lowering the riverbeds and lowering the water levels the the scale at which the lake infills every year is is decreasing and the timing of that infilling is is or the timing that the lake expands every year is is changing um, so you, there's implications for biodiversity for fish stocks for the communities that need those fish as a source of protein um, yeah it, it's the scale of that deficit just pushes everything closer towards that that point at which I guess the point of sort of irreversible change
1: thank you so much Chris for joining us it's fantastic to hear firsthand the kind of work that you're doing and the methods that you're using to engage with this significant challenge facing many parts of the world so thank you Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today um, here as a, as a researcher and also um, as a representative working for WWF. Could you kind of introduce yourself, give, give us a bit of background um, on, on who you are and, and where
4: you've worked? Thank you for the opportunity, Kate. Uh, so my name is Mark Guachot, I work as uh, the lead for freshwater for Asia Pacific for WWF based in uh, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And uh, as such, my role uh, is uh, to uh, support the uh, strategy of WWF in that uh, practice of freshwater backstop the offices, uh, identify some uh, niches and, and, and work uh, for representation with, uh, with different partners. I am a geographer, planner, and uh, so basically regional geography, wider geography with a keen interest in rivers, and a keen interest in Asia. So, I have a complementary curriculum in Asia civilization and culture. But what uh, I've been trained as is a geographer. And what I try to do is to bridge the physical geography understanding with the social realities and mm-hmm. in, in, in the governance uh, uh, agendas. So, uh, as I am working for an NGO, the science-based NGO. Uh, We we do base our work on science, but this science is applied applied to the agendas of conservation advocacy uh, and uh, in a specific niche of freshwater where from our perspective uh, is where the biggest challenge is for biodiversity that's uh, in the freshwater biome that we lose losing the species the fastest, much faster than, than the uh, the marine and terrestrial biomes. So the sixth mass extension is happening in, in our rivers before it's happening in the forest or in the seas uh, and, and very much based on, on value in rivers and, and adaptation.
1: You've said a little bit about your work with fresh water. Can you tell us about how this maps onto research on sand and where and when of how this focus on sand began for both you personally, but also for the WWF and how in effect this is all related to urbanization.
4: For me, it started uh, on the benches of university and, and uh, I have to give credit to uh, three professors who uh, gave me the, the background, uh, understanding that uh, created this interest and got me to understand the role of sand in rivers and how sand plays a crucial role in the ecosystems of rivers and their morphology. If you look at cities, half of the cities are actually sitting on uh, low-lying sedimentary coasts. Mm. Uh, And and, uh, the most fast-growing cities on the planet are those uh, coastal uh, cities. They're the most exposed uh, to Mm. water, and, and climate risk and the concept of dynamic stability, the resilience is based on this uh, balance between the, uh, this big pile of sand and mud that uh, is uh, on, on, uh, on the coast and, and, and subsiding as a natural process. The forcing agents uh, from the sea, waves, tides and, and, and longshore currents that are eroding and then the uh, rivers that bring and replenish the sediment. So if you have a balance between those three forces, then you have a stable delta. The world is realizing that uh, we're very far behind the mitigation agenda, but uh, in terms of uh, adaptation, our response is pathetic so far, and and, and that uh, it is in those low-lying coasts, in those uh, deltas and lagoons, that uh, that we have the highest urgency and, and, and a very large part of the world's population. What has emerged is the concept of uh, relative sea level rise. The fact that uh, uh, entire areas that are either urban or rural uh, are sinking much faster uh, than the level of the sea is rising. So it doesn't mean that uh, there's no urgency to address. Uh, the sea level, and uh, and we should do that. But the uh, issue in the Mekong Delta, for instance, uh, for each centimeter of of sea level rise, we have five to 10 centimeters of subsidence. And then associated to this, we have about uh, basically one meter of uh, river incision that explains the salt intrusion, the associated uh, challenges for water supply, uh, Mm. much more than than climate change. Uh, So that needs to be factored in. There are whole areas of Ho Chi Minh City, so a city of 8 million people, that are sinking at a rate that is about 7 centimeters a year. Some large areas of the city have sunk 50 centimeters in the past two decades. So in terms of resilience, uh, that's that's a huge dimension of the problem. Uh, And uh, the uh, irony, to some extent, is that the cities are the main uh, users of of sand. Ho Chi Minh City, for instance, uh, is is where the main demand is for the sand that is extracted uh, from the Mekong Delta. Phnom Penh uh, in uh, Cambodia is the main demand for the sand that is extracted uh, from the Mekong, both for the construction and for the land reclamation. Because as uh, cities subside, then uh, you build up residential areas, or industrial zones with sand. So you put two meters of sand on one hectare and then, and, and then you have a, an area that uh, used to be flood prone that becomes a high value land for construction. Mm. Cities are the biggest users of energy and uh, they are the justification for building hydro power and harder power dams trap sand. So you kind of filling the uh, golden hand by stopping the replenishment because there's no way you can get sand across a reservoir that is more than 20 kilometers long. So there's absolutely no way you can get sand across there. So what you extract from the riverbed downstream is not going to be replenished. Mm. So for the time being, we still have a buffer, but uh, in uh, 10 years, 20 years, uh, uh, the already uh, serious river incision and associated uh, riverbank erosion and coastal erosion that we're seeing that affect mangroves, that affect uh, uh, water supply, are going to be aggravating rapidly because of the uh, combined impact of sand mining uh, and uh, and hydro power. Then cities are the biggest user of uh, food, and the food in the delta uh, is is what is at risk from all of this. So, yeah, very complex paradigm and. Uh, vicious circle relations.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are so many dimensions to this relationship that seem quite shifting. What do you think this means for the way that we see cities, or at least
4: should see cities? When people measure the sustainability performance of a city, they usually look at energy performance, Mm. meaning uh, which makes sense, transport, which makes sense. But the role of water, the role they play on uh, the relation, dependence they have with, with the rivers, uh, and with sand is usually not factored in. That's a, that's a key dimension, a very interesting and key dimension of the sustainability of the cities and in the relation to sand. Yeah.
1: Given this complexity and these cycles, as you say, how is the WWF responding?
4: We believe that uh, the issue of sand in, in, in general, and and the uh, subsidence and and, and uh, erosion of deltas, is key to the adaptation uh, agenda, and and we have a. An initiative called Resilient Asian Deltas that try to uh, address uh, the, those challenges uh, of the, those mega deltas in Asia and, and and the fact that they're sinking and shrinking. So, for first of all, from a uh, governance perspective, and second, from a technical NBS uh, uh, nature-based solution uh, perspective, and, and then from a financial perspective mm-hmm. also, because sometimes you have solutions but uh, uh, you don't have finance into this. Often, public funding goes to more traditional ways of responding and, and, and less innovative. So you have to have some kind of this proof of concept that NBS are as effective or more effective in the long term than a traditional hard infrastructure that often addresses symptoms or sometimes aggravating factors, but not so often the root cause of the loss of resilience or, or impacts that we see. So if you have erosion and you build a dike, you don't solve the problem, you move the problem to the next bank and, and further downstream. So we are working towards creating those groundbreaking nature-based solutions that address the subsidence by reopening floodplains and uh, creating the conditions uh, for sediment to redeposit in the floodplains and to compensate for the, the, the subsidence, which is the only long-term solution to address the subsidence. Same thing uh, for lack of sediment. is kind of the uh, actual hill, hill of, of mangroves. So if you plant mangroves, when the conditions of uh, sediment supply and, and uh, energy of the forcing agent is too high, there's no way that the mangrove will resist. If adult mangrove is washed at sea, seedlings have no chance. So trying to add this dimension as an NBS to understand that there's a lot of good knowledge uh, that uh, exists around the conservation of mangrove that is relevant. And it's just adding that dimension of uh, understanding it from a landscape, having those uh, key examples that we can uh, use at scale in, in, in identifying the barriers to them because often we flow a technical solution to a to a governance problem uh, so a technical solution is is needed but it's uh, usually necessary but not sufficient so we, we try to uh, to address uh, uh, all together the governance issue the technical mm-hmm. solutions ground innovation and and the financing uh, dimension we we uh, actually have a project that is funded by the German government under its uh, international climate initiative that uh, looks at the issue of sensitive sand uh, in, uh, in, in Ho Chi Minh City and uh, the Delta. In that frame, we do several things. So We have a, uh, some technical assessments. We're going to do a Mekong Delta sand budget. We're going to measure the sand that comes into the Delta, measure the sand at, at different branches, intersection, and at the sea and estimate also what rate is expected, what stocks are there, so we can have a landscape-wide or delta-wide sediment budget and understand what is the resource, which is the basics. If you want to manage something, you have to be able to measure it.
1: You've spoken a bit about the ways in which WWF approaches the issue from a technical and governance and financial perspectives. I'm interested in understanding what you see then as some of the biggest issues facing attempts to manage sand as a resource?
4: The the first part is that uh, policies are usually national. Uh, the policies are with the central government, but the uh, concessions are managed by local authorities, and, and those have limited capacity to implement and enforce a lot of the good laws. So that that's, that's part of the reason why we have often... Uh, either illegal sand mining or concession holders who uh, under-report and, and, and uh, over-extract. But the other issue, which I think is uh, very interesting, is that uh, usually the authority, the agency, the ministry that is in charge of sand mining is the Ministry of uh, Minerals, uh, which makes sense because it's a mineral. Uh, but the problem is that sand flows through rivers and is deeply associated with the management of water. And often you move between those two agencies. It is an issue. It is an issue in, in many countries uh, where you don't know exactly where sand mining lies mm. uh, because, because it is between th- those two authorities. And, and that's part of the reason why it falls through the crack and, and, and is not so well regulated in the end.
1: Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. I feel like we've had a really good insight into understanding a little bit more about the relationships between sediment and cities and why we need to think more broadly about what the city is and the materials that underpin it. We've also had great detail on some of the projects that the WWF are working on in this area, particularly with regards to nature-based solutions. So thank you so much. podcast which unearths the connections between urbanization and the material at the heart of it, sand. I'm Kate Dawson
3: and I'm your host. Thanks for joining.